you guys pray with me as we dig in? Dear Lord, you've given us your word and your scripture and the faithful testimony of the Apostle John. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to be working in our hearts and our minds and our souls as you open this up to us. Lord, may you give me, give me your words, not my own. May you be glorified through this and not me. In your name we pray. Amen. One of my great joys in life is learning new things. I love to learn new things, whether it's a new gadget. Um, every time I get a new cell phone, I have to learn all of the different functions in that cell phone just for the sake of, of knowing it. Or if it's um, a new kind of philosophical thought or a new counseling technique or whatnot, it doesn't really matter. I love to learn. That is one of my great joys in life. Um, and as a result of this, if somebody else doesn't know something or, or they they... they say something that I'm like, oh, there's something else we can add to that. I can barely contain myself because I just have so much joy that I want you to learn as much as me. Uh, yeah, however, I've learned that not everybody is like me in that. <laughs> so I have to kind of pick and choose the times at which, I'm, at which I share these in, insights or, or things that I've learned. Um, because otherwise I can be in danger of turning into that person whose sentences always seem to begin with, well, actually, I am that person many times. But through this part of my life, through kind of learning this, I, I have observed two dangers that come from this, uh, that we can get into in terms of learning. Uh, on my side, on the side of, of just always wanting to share and, and maybe correct a little bit, is the desire to gain more knowledge and to learn so much that we start going beyond where truth actually is, and we get into more of a false knowledge and for the sake of learning. So maybe in a way we're saying, in, in a quest for learning something new, we can leave the truth and we start to speculate. And in our speculation, we call it knowledge because we're thinking, oh, this is logical, it goes this way, and, and even though we don't have anything to back it up with, we call it truth. That's one danger. And on the flip side of this, I've seen the danger of being obstinate. Right, and there's there's a broader understanding of truth presented, and it's actual truth, not speculation. But it's a lot of work to learn it, and it challenges our comfort zone, or maybe it even challenges um, a place where we don't know a lot, but we rely on it, where it's foundational to our our identity as people, and it's challenged by something new, and so we get very obstinate. We don't want to hear it. We push back on it. We won't listen. Um, think religion. We often do this with our faith. This is the type of uh, this is the type of danger that discourages people from asking questions, because we're uncomfortable and we're not sure we can answer it. But we 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 think we need to have it um, fully understood in order to to hold it as truth. And John's writing to church, the churches in this letter that have both of these dangers on both sides of these things. They, they heard the truth, and they probably heard it from Paul, who came back in almost 20, 30 years before these letters were written. And now there are some teachers in the, in the church who are trying to add falsehoods to it. They're giving false teachings and, and presenting it as truth. But then there's others who are obstinate, and they're only living in part of the truth, the part of the truth that they're comfortable with, that they are okay with experiencing. And so he writes them this letter with the motivation that, and this is what he says to them in that last verse 4, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. I'm writing these letters. I'm encouraging you. I'm exhorting you to make our joy complete, which sounds a little selfish, but 
their motivation isn't his motivation, John's motivation, the other people riding with him is not to gain personal satisfaction. They're not looking in this for their own personal glory. Their joy being complete isn't, oh, I am honored above everyone else. No, as, as, um, as the commentator I, Howard Marshalls, puts it, he says, John has the heart of a pastor which cannot be completely happy so long as some of those whom he feels responsible for are not experiencing the full blessings of the gospel. That's what he means when he says, we write these things to make our joy complete. He's saying, I want so much for you to enjoy the full blessing of the gospel that I cannot contain myself until you, until you get to this point, until you fully grasp and take hold of those blessings. All right, so let's talk about John for a moment. So as I mentioned, we're going to be, we're going to be working through John, 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John for, for most good part of the, of the summer. Um, and, uh, part of talking about our elders and our deacons was that when I met with them and, and we were talking about this and what we should be doing for, for preaching and, and, and leading the church going on, we felt led that this was a series that we should do. This reading through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John was the way that our church should go for, for this time. And so, let's take a moment to understand the context, because as my professor would always say, context is key. When you're looking at studying the Bible, understand the context of what was written. So John's an old man when he's writing this, probably. He's probably an old man. He's not the young apostle anymore who uh, was just beginning in his faith. He's old enough that he's seen many, if not all, of his fellow apostles get martyred, killed, tortured in every imaginable way. He's probably the only one left of the original 12. The Romans have gone and they've destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so they've effectively ended that protected status of Jews in the empire. So this is, so this is why now you don't necessarily see so much um, written about the division between Jews and Gentiles in his letters because there really isn't that division now as there was back when Paul was writing. He's seen a whole lot of false teachers come into the church and bring this special knowledge or these, these new teachings that, that are better and bigger in additions to the gospel. And, and they've tried to twist the gospel for their own benefit. Many of the churches that he's ministered to are starting to stray. Think of the letters in uh, Revelation, the, the letters to the seven churches in there and how he talks about, hey, you, you started here, but man, you really need to get better here. You've lost your first love. This is a man, John, who was called the one whom Jesus loved. He was beloved by Jesus when he was on earth. He's been faithful to Jesus through a long and very trying life. He's seen the temptations that afflict the church. He's seen how people wander off. He's seen how people lose their first love of Christ. He's seen people be deceived. He's seen people being the deceivers. He's probably been rejected by some of the very people that he brought to faith. And yet... He's still so full of empathy and passion for the God, for the people around him, and he wants them to experience the full blessings of the gospel. Now, John's writings don't have the eloquence of Paul. Um, and they don't have the, the precision and the technicality of Luke, and they don't have the brilliance that we're told of, of Apollo speaking. Uh, yet in these letters, they're very simple words, very uncomplicated grammar. When I was learning Greek, these were the first letters we translated because they're easy to translate. But we experience a deep love and almost a grandfatherly-like figure who takes immense joy in seeing his children and grandchildren grow up in the faith. As John Stott, and commentator, puts it, If Paul's writings are like a rushing river, John's are like a lake. Still 
quiet, unassuming, and yet they reflect the glory of the heavens and contain the depths of the ocean. Much of Paul's writings, in, in contrast to John, Paul often will look forward to the life that we're going to enjoy with God in, eternally. Whereas Paul, whereas John, having lived such a long life, he invites us to enjoy the life that we are currently experiencing with God. John writes that we may experience the full blessings of the gospel. Right? And take a moment to think about that. He's seen all of his brothers killed. Tortured. He's seen churches wandering away. He's seen this, this movement that started out so hot and so convicting, and, and as it spread, he's seen corruption even infiltrate the message of the gospel. And that must be heartbreaking. And yet he's still passionate about it and still does not cease in his ministry. And that's my hope for you. My hope for you is that as we read through John, as we study through John, I'm taking a long time to introduce this for this very reason. So that you guys will fall in love with him too. The same way that Jesus fell in love with him or Jesus loved him while he was on earth. And the same way that Jesus' love is, is shown through these words and, that, and, and, and poured out to us. That we might be able to sink into them as well over these next few months. And to fall in love with the words as well and the message that they bring. And so this is how he begins. Starting in verse 1 he says this. He says, Jesus is real. Pretty simple. If you look with me in verse 1, John introduces that which was from the beginning. All right, so if you've read John's gospel, the gospel of John, not first John, the gospel of John, you're very familiar with this beginning phrase. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Maybe that sounds familiar. John's referencing that same thing. He's talking about Jesus here when he talks about that. He's reaffirming that Jesus is God. Notice that Jesus, or the word, doesn't start from the beginning. He's already there in the beginning, meaning that, as um, I'm going to murder this pronunciation, Aristides, the philosopher of Athens way back in the ancient times, he wrote this. When I say without beginning, this means that everything which has beginning also has an end, and that which has an end may be brought to an end, but God has neither a beginning or an end. But not only is Jesus God, he's also became human. And how do we know that for sure? Well, as we talked about in our children's sermon, John says we, he, him and the apostles, they heard him. They saw him with their own eyes. They touched him with their own hands. John hasn't even completed his, his first sentence yet. And he's already intimately relating to that this Jesus you've heard about is both fully God and fully human. That's important right from the get-go. And this is necessary for us to know as a starting point to receive these full blessings of the gospel that he's trying to, to write to us and intimate to us. All right, so how do you know someone's married? Or at least how do you know if somebody's engaged to be married? We wear rings. Yes, we wear rings because we wear a certain ring on a certain finger. And now there are many other ways that let you know that two people are married. Um, for example, the way that they love each other, how they put the other spouse above themselves, how they um, share each other's burdens in difficult times and rejoice with each other in the good times, how they choose each other over everyone else time and time and time again. These are some of the things, just a few of the characteristics that go into being married and indicate that a couple's married. But when we're looking to see if somebody's married, we look at the ring. We look for a ring on the finger. Why? Because we can see it. We can touch it. If we drop it, we can hear it. Maybe we can taste it. Hopefully you can't smell it. But 
We can use our senses to definitely, definitively determine that marriage is present. Even though there's so many other things that go into a marriage, this is the sign that we look for. And in the same way, God, John assures us that Jesus, who really is God, really did become human because he could sense them, because he had all of these physical things that even though being human is a whole lot more than just being able to, to see, hear, and touch someone, those things confirmed for us what we already could see that, and know and have heard, that Jesus was also human. And this may seem like a pretty obvious point, right? Jesus fully God, fully human. If you've been in the church for a while, you've heard this said time and time again. But apparently it's not that obvious because starting all the way back in the end of the first century and all the way up to today's times, many people who claim to be Christians deny that Jesus was really God or they deny that he really came to earth or that he really existed. It's crazy, but there are presidents of seminary. There was a president of, of, of a big seminary in New York who recently did an interview and tweeted out that um, did not believe either one of those things about Jesus, did not believe that he was divine. And it's just crazy to think as somebody who would train our pastors would deny that. I, I don't know how we get to that point, but it's where we're at. That's what John's preaching against. That's what we deal with still today. And in, but, as John says, in order to f- enjoy the full blessing of the gospel, we have to affirm that this is true. Starting at the beginning, simple building blocks. I told you, John's pretty, he starts off simple. This isn't complicated. Well, it is complicated. But maybe not if you've heard it before. Um, and we have the testimony of the apostles affirming this to us, that Jesus is real. Okay. Next, going on, he goes on to say that Jesus is the eternal life. Now, continuing that beginning statement in verse 2, John says that concerning this word of life, which I just told you was real, we are testifying and proclaiming that he is the eternal life, which was with the Father, and who is, once again, real. The significance of that is that we share Jesus' life. I know this is a little boring. We're going through some, some, some very easy stuff. But Jesus' life is eternal. It has no end. And so John's writing this letter to the churches who were probably founded by Paul, or at the very least they've read Paul's letters that are circulating around. And so the things that he writes in this letter are building on what Paul's already said. So for instance, when we read in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul beautifully lays out how Christ died for us, and in him we all died. And we all died to our lives of sin, but we did not stay dead. For the Christ was raised from the dead, and we are alive with him. And John is writing to testify and to proclaim that our life is eternal because Jesus' life is eternal. And we share in that. Now, a few months ago, one of my friends on Facebook posted a a question. They asked if they should start shopping at Aldi. All right. And you best believe that I jumped on that because I am an Aldi fanboy. I will rarely miss an opportunity to proclaim the goodness and that is, that is the Aldi experience and to testify how much I have saved and enjoyed the German culinary experiences that you can only get at Aldi. I can go on. Right? I can testify to it because I get my groceries from there. And I proclaimed it to my friend on Facebook because I wanted them to experience that fullness of joy that comes from shopping at Aldi. I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek. But the method of testifying and proclaiming is exactly what John's doing here. 
He and the apostles experienced firsthand what this eternal life is in Jesus and the liberation that you get from the oppression of sin and death. And they are so filled with joy by it and they wanted everyone else to experience their joy in it that they just had to say it. They had to write it. They had to send it out to everyone because they want everyone else to experience it too. John proclaims to them the eternal life because he wants them to enjoy the full blessings of the gospel. Jesus, who really is God and really is human, will give us this joy that will not be complete for for John and for his apostles until the people under their care that they feel responsible for experience it with them. And it's a beautiful thing when something is proclaimed to us with selfless desire. Because we're so inundated with proclamations that are inundated with selfish desires. All right? Think about all the advertisements that you hear to buy this and experience joy because then I can earn some money. Or join us and experience joy so that I can gain more influence and power. Believe this and experience joy so that I have power to manipulate you. But the proclamation of the gospel by those who have experienced it and can testify to that eternal life does not contain any selfish desires like that. There's no, so I can get this. It's so that I can enjoy you being in joy. That is all. And frankly, this is where we go wrong. When we do proclaim the gospel, we often do it with our own insecurity attached to that proclamation. We feel that a possible rejection, or maybe this is just me, if you relate to this, then go, then let's go for it. But feeling that a possible rejection of the gospel, if I proclaim the gospel to somebody and they reject it, I feel like they've rejected me. But they haven't. They haven't rejected me. All that's being shown is that the Holy Spirit's still working on them. And we get to be a part of that work. The full blessing of the gospel manifests in a joy that is complete. Now, on the other side of that, on the other side of of feeling rejected is um, if we can testify to the joy of eternal life, why are we often so afraid to proclaim it? Why Why do we feel the inhibitions to it? My experience is that at times we aren't able to testify to that joy because we don't necessarily experience that joy. And if that's where you're at, you're at, if you're there and you're like, man, I don't feel the, the, the drive to proclaim it because I don't know if I'm necessarily feeling the fullness of the blessings of the gospel either. Well, then I invite you to really dig in with us this summer. Dig into these words of John to, 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 yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. But, um, let the simplicity and the depth And the love of John's words and the love of God coming through John's words change how you experience the gospel and do it as part of a community. Notice how John is always saying we. It's never an I or me. So come here on Sunday mornings and worship. 
within your family during the week. Study these words. Pour over these words. Pray over these words. Let me encourage you, um, stepping out of something that we don't have any formal thing in, in, in place, but to find someone, find a friend, find a group, find a couple other people to go get coffee with during the week, to go work out with during the week, and to talk about this, to study, and to, to dig into John's word, and to proclaim the gospel to each other. In the places where you've experienced joy, to proclaim that to the other person so that they can experience joy with you and together as you building up and building up each other so that our joy may be complete. Because as John goes on to say, Jesus is our fellowship. If you look with me in verse 3, John states that his purpose in proclaiming the gospel is so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now the fellowship, this is, this is a word you can kind of glance over it, but as John Stott, write, John Stott writes, he says it's a Greek word, which literally means having in common. Two or more people can be said to have fellowship with one another when they have something in common. James and John were sharers of Simon in their common pursuit of fishing. Paul and Titus shared a common faith. Believers share in the grace of God and Jesus and spiritual gifts generally, as a result, bring out fellowship. As a result, fellowship has a couple things to it. One is that fellowship in Christ means to participate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and in Christian service while sharing our union with each other through the eternal life of Jesus. Now, that's a lot of kind of Christianese and a nice, easy way of saying things. So maybe to break it down a little bit is to be in fellowship with Christ means to mutually experience God's forgiveness. It means to experience his grace and his love together, not as individuals, but as part of fellowship. And through this, to share that bond which transcends worldly understanding. Jesus is real. He is the eternal life, and through him we have fellowship. And it is in this fellowship that we experience the full blessings of the gospel. Now, my wife, Samantha, and I, we went down to a wedding in Georgia. We went to, one of her, one of her friends was having a wedding, and uh, I barely knew anyone there. And so, as what typically happens at a wedding, you go around meeting a whole lot of people you don't know, and you will never meet again, and you try to have polite conversation about absolutely nothing. And I'm terrible at it, and it's exhausting for me. Um, but then I started talking to this one guy, and we, we were we had these little fans that they gave us during the ceremony because it was outside, and it was hot, it was in Georgia, and we're trying to figure out how did these little things work. And as we're talking, it becomes clear to us that we're going a whole lot more in-depth with this analysis than any normal person would do, <laughs> right? And so we kind of both look at each other and simultaneously ask, like, did you do engineering? Sure enough, he did aerospace, I did mechanical. And so all right there in that moment, there was a bond of fellowship between the two of us. We shared something in common that we didn't have with most people. And so from then on, for the rest of the night, like we shared that bond of familiarity, whether we saw each other on the dance floor or, you know, we bumped into each other or whatnot. I was like, oh, there's that one person I can relate to. And we had a depth with each other that we couldn't get with everyone else because even though we were never going to see each other again, we... We had that thing that we shared and that common experience and that common ground that we built off of. And that was just through having studied the same thing. How much deeper is our fellowship between brothers and sisters who share in the forgiveness and healing of sin, who have been vulnerable with each other, 
who have confessed our sins to each other and lamented to God for each other and with each other over the hurt we've experienced. Or who both have the Holy Spirit empowering our words and our actions, knowing that what we do for his sake, for God's sakes, has eternally good consequences. Who love, not through our own ability to love and often with selfish ends, but through God's love for us and through the overflowing of his love for us to each other. And who know that we'll continue glorifying God for all of eternity together. That's only a small part of the fellowship that we are meant to enjoy together. Now, if you don't feel like you've ever enjoyed this fellowship in the church, let me invite you to ask why. Why? Ask the Bible. Ask, get into John here as he talks about our fellowship in Christ and ask, why haven't I enjoyed that fellowship? Why haven't I experienced that? But not only asking the Bible that, ask each other. Ask our neighbors. Ask that person sitting next to you in the row, man, why don't I have that bond with you? How can I grow deeper with you? How can I share that fellowship and that love that, that just seems so deep? Because Jesus is real. He is the eternal life. And because we have fellowship with him and, and through him with the Father, and this is why John writes, testifies, and proclaims Jesus Christ and why he desires for us to share in that full blessing of the gospel so that we can have that fellowship. Right now, as I've, I've talked about in several sermons, we have record levels of anxiety, depression, and loneliness, especially in people in my age group and, grow, and, and, and below. We don't get this fellowship anywhere else. We get it here in the church. This is where it's meant to be found. And so let us be that. Let us live into that. Let us grow in that over this coming summer together as we dig into the words of John and the words of God through him. All right, as we close, it's a couple things. John Stott points these out, and I think that it's very insightful. Coming back to the, the, those two dangers that I had in, in, in wanting to learn, he, he highlights that. John's prologue, these first four verses here, highlights two dangers which still confront the church. The one is that the assumption of Christian fellowship is possible other than on the basis of common belief in Christ. It's not. The other is the danger of the assumption that it's possible to have a true relationship with God while rejecting Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus. The Apostle John starts his letter with Jesus because there's no other way to experience that full blessing of the gospel except through him. And as we start our time in John's letters, I hope you take away these two things with us and, and, and bring them with you every Sunday to your groups, maybe to go talk to people and start Bible studies or just even hanging out with each other. One is, I, want, I, hope, I hope you're feeling a desire and a yearning for this fellowship in Christ that John testifies and proclaims to us. The second is I hope that you take with you a foundation that the full blessing of the gospel comes only through life in Jesus. He's fully God. He's fully human. And he died for our sins and he was raised to life eternal so that we might live in him to enjoy that fellowship. Amen. All right.